Psalm 10. Why, O Lord, do you stand far away? Why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? In arrogance, the wicked hotly pursue the poor. They let them be caught in the schemes that they have devised. For the wicked boast of the desires of his soul and the one greedy for gain curses and renounces the Lord in pride of his face. The wicked does not seek him. At all his thoughts are, there is no God. His ways prosper at all times. Your judgments are on high, out of his sight. As for all his foes, he puffs at them. He says in his heart, I shall not be moved throughout all generations. I shall not meet adversity. His mouth is filled with cursing and deceit and oppression. Under his tongue are mischief and iniquity. He sits in ambush in the villages, in hiding places. He murders the innocent. His eyes stealthily watch for the helpless. He lurks in ambush like a lion in his thicket. He lurks that he may seize the poor. He seizes the poor when he draws him into his net. The helpless are crushed sink down and fall by his might. He says in his heart, God has forgotten. He has hidden his face. He will never see it. Arise, O Lord, O God. Lift up your hand, forget not the afflicted. Why does the wicked renounce God and say in his heart, you will not call to account? But you do see, for you note mischief and vexation that you may take it into your hands. To you the helpless commits himself. You have been the helper of the fatherless. Break the arm of the wicked and evildoer. Call his wickedness to account till you find none. The Lord is king forever and ever. The nations perish from this land. Oh Lord, you hear the desire of the afflicted. Afflicted, you will strengthen their heart. You will incline your ear to do justice to the fatherless and the oppressed. So that man who is of the earth may strike terror no more. I, I do hope you had a wonderful Christmas celebration and a happy new year. I hope you enjoyed all of that. While you and I were celebrating the Advent season in the comfort and safety of our homes and our churches, terrorists were carrying out attacks on Nigerian Christians that up till the last report I saw had killed 200 believers and the death toll continues to rise. Reports of the attacks indicate that along with pastors and their families, the elderly, women, and children represent a disproportionate number of those that have been killed. A Baptist Press article on the attacks concluded by saying this, Nigeria is the deadliest country for Christians. With 5,014 Christians killed there in 2022 for their faith, surpassing the 4,650 killed the previous year. It is a reminder, reading such reports, that this world is corrupted 
And this world is filled with wickedness. Psalm 10 addresses the wickedness of this world and the destruction that such evil brings, particularly to the weak and the vulnerable. However, I want to give you a warning even before we start this morning. We must be careful not to assume in reading and preaching this passage that the wickedness exposed in Psalm 10 applies to someone else. That is always a danger when we read Scripture. We read Scripture, we figure out pretty quickly who are the good guys, who are the bad guys, and we tend to identify with the good folks and assume that the bad folks are someone else. But that would be a dangerous assumption when reading Psalm 10. The danger of assuming this psalm is talking about someone else is that you will not receive the warning that is for you. Uh, This psalm does not confront what we might call classical atheism. Now, classical atheism is uh, the total open rejection of the existence of God. That's not what Psalm 10 is dealing with. When it talks about the wicked and the unrighteous, it's not talking about those that deny wholeheartedly, completely the existence of God. This psalm is confronting functional or practical atheism. Functional or practical atheism is living as though there is no God. So even while you may acknowledge there is a God, the actions of your life, the testimony of the way you live is functionally, practically a testimony that you don't believe God exists or is going to have any impact upon your life. My suspicion is that few, if any of you, would confess to being an atheist this morning. That's good. Amen. But I'm fearful that many of you may be living as functional atheists, practically living out your life with the testimony, the assumption that God doesn't really matter. This psalm has four parts. The first is a question that many of you have asked, and it's a good question to ponder. Why does God allow the wicked to sin seemingly without consequence? Look at what he says. The question is, why, O Lord, do you stand far away? Why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? And then then there's going to be this, the next section is this long section on on the wicked. And the reality of it is you and I can identify well with this. Why does it seem like that the wicked, that those who reject God, that those who are in rebellion against God, that those who are doing openly hostile things to the Lord seem like right now they're able to do that without any opposition from the Lord? Why, God, are you not doing something about it right now is the question. That's part one. And then in three sections following that, David lays out the answer. Talks about first the false assurance of the wicked. And then in verses 12 through 15 is a prayer for God to act. And then in the last section, verses 16, 17, and 18, is a declaration of hope for eternity. So that's how we're going to divide our our look at the psalm. We're, We're going to start with those second, third, and fourth sections, building on the question. 
And in that first section, verses uh, uh, 2 through 11, David lays out the false assurance of wicked pride. The false assurance of wicked pride. And now, there's a lot in these verses, um, but I I really want to just draw your attention to three verses that I think show a progression of this false assurance of wicked pride. And the first is rejecting the need for God. Look with me in verse 3 where it says, For the wicked boast of the desires of of his soul, and the one greedy for gain curses and renounces the Lord. The most dangerous place anyone can be is to believe that you do not need the Lord. That's a precarious, dangerous spot to be. Verse 2 is translated in the ESV as in arrogance. So in verse 2 it says, In arrogance the wicked hotly pursue the poor. The word that is translated as arrogance can also be translated as haughtiness or pride. And I want you to notice the progression that that David lays out. In verse 2, in arrogance and pride, the wicked act wickedly towards the poor and vulnerable. In verse 3, the wicked boasts in wicked desires and curses and renounces God. And in verse 4, they no longer seek the Lord and all his thoughts ignore the Lord. In verse 3, the word that is translated as curses can also mean bless or celebrate greedy gain. In other words, celebrate the things that are wicked before the Lord. And the word that is translated as renounce means to treat with contempt or dishonor. So in other words, just look at the Lord with dishonor or contempt. And then in verse 4 it says, In the pride of his face, the wicked does not seek him. All his thoughts are There is no God. One commentator put it another way. He wrote, or in all his thoughts, there is no room for God. Now, this there is no God statement is not, remember I said this is not classical atheism. This is not someone saying, I don't believe in God anymore. The the point is, there's just no room for God in my thoughts. There's no concern for God in my thoughts. I'm living as though there is no God. Dear friends, you need the Lord for every breath, every heartbeat. Your life and the number of your days rest in the sovereign hand of God. Yet some of you have been given to pride that leads your heart to believe that you do not need the Lord. Now, my guess is that few, if any of you have said that out loud, none of you woke up this morning and said, I don't need the Lord, but I'm going to go to church anyway. (laughs) You, you probably don't start your work week with, I, I don't need the Lord. But, but you, you, and you may be ashamed even to admit it to your friends or, or, or in your family or even to yourself. But the evidence of your life is that you are living in the pride of self-assurance. What room 
does the Lord possess in your faults? So just think back your last week. As you made financial decisions, as you made plans for your schedule, as you thought about what you were going to try to accomplish in 2024, and all those things that you pondered and thought about and made decisions about just in the last seven days, how much room did the Lord have in those decisions? Did it start with, God, how are you directing my path? Or was God even in the thought pattern? For some of you, the the question of God's leadership wasn't even on the agenda. That's true. You're like verse 4. In all his thoughts, there is no room for God. What room does the Lord possess in your heart? Is your life directed by the Lord's leadership, or are you living as though you have no need for the Lord? That's a dangerous place to be. But then secondly, this, this, the, the, the false assurance of wicked pride leads to rejecting the sovereignty of God. Look with me in verse 6. He says in his heart, I shall not be moved throughout all generations. I shall not meet adversity. Rejecting your need for the Lord leads to rejecting the sovereignty of God. In, in verse 3, David describes the arrogance of such a person. Uh, excuse me, in verse 6, he describes the arrogance of such a person when he says, I shall not be moved throughout all generations. I shall not meet adversity. Pride leads you to turn away from the law of God. Pride leads you to ignore the commands of God. Pride leads you to assume that because the consequences of your sin are not immediate, they will never come. And you say with that arrogant pride, I shall not be moved. But that's not the testimony of Scripture, is it? Ephesians chapter 8 tells us because the sentence against an evil deed is not executed speedily, the heart of the children of man is fully set to do evil. In other words, because there's not an immediate consequence to sin, many think you can sin without any consequence at all. 1 Thessalonians 5 tells us why people are saying there is peace and security. Then suddenly, then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman and they will not escape. It's talking about the coming judgment of the Lord when Jesus returns. Rejecting the sovereignty of God rejects that God is in control over all things. Friends, all of creation submits to the command and the direction of God. We see it all the way throughout Scripture. Oftentimes, the most dramatic places we see it is not when when people submit to to the sovereignty of God, but when creation submits to the sovereignty of God. Just two examples I would I would point your attention to. You may remember Daniel, who was living in a foreign land, was put in a den of lions who were intended to devour him. The next morning when they came to get him, the lions were still hungry and Daniel still lived. Not because that was natural for the lions, but because the sovereignty of God commanded it so. 
You may remember the disciples with Jesus. They were on a boat and a great storm came up. Most of his disciples were were fishermen by trade. They were men who had spent the most of their life on the water. They were skilled and gifted at managing the boat and being on the water. Surely they had seen many storms before and a light wind and a light rain were not going to scare these men. And yet they were fearful fearful for their life. They woke up Jesus and they said, you got to help us. And he stood up and he commanded the winds and the waves to be still. And do you know what happened? Immediately the wind stopped and the waves became peaceful. Now friends, who else do you know commands the winds and the waves? My favorite line in all of the New Testament is the disciples marveled amongst themselves and they asked this question, who is this? That even the winds and the waves obey him. Who is this indeed? But the one who is sovereign over all things. He is sovereign over the lions. He is sovereign over the winds and the waves. Brothers and sisters, dear friends, he is sovereign over you and the number of your days as well. All of creation submits to the command and direction of God, but pride leads the wicked to stand in opposition to the sovereignty of God in sinful disobedience. Brothers and sisters, are you recognizing that God is in control of your days, or are you standing in wicked defiance saying, I will not be moved? Then in verse 11, False arrogance of wicked pride leads to rejecting the judgment of God. He says in his heart, that is the one who is wicked, God has forgotten and has hidden his face. He will never see it. Verse 10 recognizes that the sin of the wicked has a disastrous effect on the weak and vulnerable around them. It says the helpless are crushed, sink down, and fall by his might. The common disastrous result of sin is that the weak and vulnerable are abused and mistreated. This is true today. Friends, listen to me. Listen to me carefully on this. As our world grows more secular and the common grace of a biblical worldview dissipates, who will be most affected and who will be most damaged will be the weak and vulnerable in our society. That's the way it has been since Genesis 3. It's the way it will be until Jesus comes again. Throughout Scripture, God's people are commanded to provide and protect the, uh, and protect the weak and vulnerable society, oftentimes articulated as orphans and widows. Law and public policy may be able to provide some protection and help. However, as long as the world is corrupted by sin... The wicked will abuse and mistreat those who do not have the strength to stand against them. Verse 11 explains why the wicked feel so free to abuse the weak and vulnerable. Because judgment seems like it will not come. It feels like their sin has been hidden. When Israel entered into the promised land... God both commanded and encouraged them that if they kept the law, the land would be their possession, meaning he would keep them in the land. But he also warned them that their sin would not be hidden from him. In in Numbers chapter 32, it says, But if you will not do so, behold, you have sinned against the Lord, and be sure your sin will find you out. 
When pride leads you to to live as though God will not judge sin, there will be no restraint on your sin and rebellion. Pride leads to destruction, but the fear of the Lord leads to salvation. That's why Joshua chapter 24, verse 14, as the people were preparing to, they had entered the promised land, they had, they had established them, and now they're about to go to their various places and their tribes or to possess their particular areas of the land. Joshua said to the people, now therefore fear the Lord. Fear the Lord and serve him in sincerity and in faithfulness. Put away the gods of your fathers uh, that your fathers served beyond the river and, be, and in Egypt and serve the Lord. The lack of fear of the Lord leads to unrestrained sin. And unrestrained sin leads to destruction. Fear of the Lord leads unto salvation and, and to hope. The false assurance of wicked pride. Now, if we ended with verse 11, that would be somewhat of a, uh, a depressing spot because the question in verse 1 is, God, why do you allow such things to continue? Why does it seem like you've turned a blind eye or a deaf ear to our times of trouble? Then from verse 2 to verse 11, it's just a, a testimony of what all of us in this room, whether you know Jesus or not, can testify that is true. That it seems like the wicked have prospered. It seems like the wicked are unrestrained. It seems like there, there's not any, any consequence for that. And, and, and it's really going from bad to worse. Then we come to verse 12, 13, 14, and 15. And David prays a prayer of the righteous. And he says in this passage, Arise, O Lord, O God, lift up your hand. Forget not the afflicted. Now just a couple of things from this prayer. Number one, what David prays for is you, you might think that the, that the first impulse for him to pray would be, God, help me. Or, listen to me carefully, you might think the first impulse would be for, for him to pray, God, get them. Now, if we're honest, some of us have prayed that prayer, haven't we? Somebody's mistreated you, something wicked or horrible has been done, and, and, and maybe the, because of the justice system or the legal realities or whatever, they, the consequences of what somebody did did not come to befall them, and you have prayed that prayer, God, you ought to just get them. Call down fire from heaven. Do something. Get them. But I want you to notice how David prays. Really just prays in, in two ways. The first is he prays that all would know the glory of God. That's verses 12 and 13. So in, in verses 12, 13, 14, and 15, David responds to the wickedness of those who rejected the Lord with a prayer. And his prayer has these two parts, a request to act and a declaration of truth. And he first acts, asks God to act for a specific purpose. He asked the Lord to act so that all would know the glory of God. And specifically, he asked that God would remember the afflicted, that's verse 12, and that he would confront the wicked, verse 13. Now, both actions have as the foundational desire that God's glory be known. Now, the New Testament speaks to this in Philippians chapter 2 when it says, therefore, God has highly exalted him, speaking of Jesus, and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, do you know what comes next? Every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Now, when we think about that scene, 
Many of you in this room, you think about it in, in, in a positive sense. That's because the saints will bow their knees and confess Jesus as Lord with joy and worship. If you're a believer today, in your heart, you believe that Jesus is Lord and God raised him from the dead. You've confessed that as the truth of your heart. And so when every knee bows and, and every tongue confesses, that's just what you're already doing. But this passage is speaking about more than just believers confessing and bowing their knee. It's also speaking about all those who are in heaven and on earth and even below the earth. In other words, everyone. Now that just, you know who that includes? It includes both the righteous and the wicked. Now the wicked confess Jesus as Lord and bow their knee, not out of worship or out of joy, but out of response to the truth that cannot be denied. The wicked will bow their knee and confess Jesus as Lord in mournful recognition of what God has made known. Both the glory of heaven and the condemnation of hell testify to the glory of God. We need to hear this. When we think about the glory of God, we often think in the positive side of the, of the ledger. The glory of heaven, yes, all of heaven will be glorifying the Lamb, but hell glorifies God as well. Because hell testifies to the righteousness of God. There is no wickedness in the presence of the living God. There is no sin in the presence of the living God. And God will perfectly, completely, totally judge and bring condemnation upon all wickedness. Praise God for that. Both those who confess Jesus out of joy and those who confess Jesus in the, in the, in the, in the, in the judgment of God are doing so for the glory of God for all of eternity. So listen to the idea behind why, why David is praying here. When he prays in these first few verses of, of, of 12 and 13, he's not just praying, God, get them. <laughs> now, when we pray, God, get them, that's, that's a prayer for our desire. But David prays for the glory of God. Listen to what he says. Arise, O God, lift up your hand, forget not the afflicted. Why does the wicked renounce God and say in his heart, you will not be called to account? But you do see, for you note mischief and vexation, that you may take it into your hands, that, that uh, to you the helpless commits himself. You have uh, been the helper of the fatherless. In other words, he's just saying, I, my prayer is that all of creation would know the glory of your name. The glory of God is not only the righteous desire of our, uh, it, the glory of God is the only righteous desire of our prayer request. When you pray even for hard things, like responding to the wickedness of this world, pray according to the glory of God. But then in verses 14 and 15, he also prays for the will of God to be done. So the second thing that David prays is a testimony of truth. David prays these words not to inform God, but to rejoice in the assurance that the will of God will come to pass. Come to pass. Verse 14, God does see and know all things including all things done in secret and in the dark. Look at what he says. But you do see, for you note mischief and vexation. In other words, David's just declaring in his prayer, God, I know that nothing that's ever been done, whether in public or in private, has been missed by you. He's answering the question of verse 1. God's not turned a blind eye. He's not turned a deaf ear. There is no sin or wickedness that has escaped his knowledge or his notation. Then he says, God will righteously judge every action and sin that you may take it into your 
hands, he says. And he says God will provide for the vulnerable and, and weak when he says to you the helpless commits himself. You have been the helper of the fatherless. And then in verse 15, he says God will judge the world and establish his perfect and complete Righteousness. Verse 15 ends with a final and hopeful declaration that God will accomplish his will until there is not to be found one rebellious evildoer. Look at what he says. <laughs> Call his wickedness to account until you find none. Not just today, not just yesterday, not just tomorrow, but for all of eternity until you find none. This is the complete, the total, the finished judgment of God. The prayer of the righteous for the glory of God and that the will of God will be done. Jesus taught us to pray this way, that your will be done on earth as it is in heaven for the glory of God that your will be done. And then the last few verses, verses 16 through 18, David turns his attention to the hope of eternity. And he says in verse 16, where I find the title for the sermon this morning, the Lord is king forever and ever. In other words, the Lord is the eternal king. In the final section and last three verses, David declares three hopeful and eternal truths about God. And the first is that God is king forever and and ever. We come back to this theme over and over again, and that is that no matter how great and powerful the kings and governments are of this world, and no matter how mighty they may seem presently, God is king of them all. While the rulers of this world have moments of power, God is king today, tomorrow, and forever. While the wicked of this world seem to be unrestrained and unencumbered, they will all surrender to the rule of the eternal king of kings. While it seems that the rulers of this world have the power, they will someday perish. They will someday pass from the land. But the Lord God will rule forever and ever. The Lord God is God and king today and will be king tomorrow and will be king the next day and the next day and forever and ever and ever for all of eternity. The Lord is the eternal king and the Lord hears the cries of the saints. Look at what he says in verse 17. O oh Lord, you hear the desire of the afflicted. You will strengthen their heart. You will incline, you will incline your ear. That's a hopeful word. I don't know if you've ever felt like you were totally alone. I don't know if you've ever felt like that you being abused or mistreated and nobody was aware or could help you in any way. That's a, that's a bad place to be. And if you've ever found yourself in such a situation, despondency is around every corner. So listen to what David says. Not only are you king forever, but you hear the cries of the saints in times of suffering and in grief, it feels as though you have been abandoned, but God sees you. He knows where you are and what you are and what you need. God knows your needs. He hears you when you cry. 
God is working for your deliverance and salvation. And the encouragement here is rest in the power and the might of God that no matter what the circumstances of your moment are, God will deliver his people unto salvation. He is king forever. He is working with an eternal purpose. God sees you, he hears you, he knows you, and he will deliver you. He's king forever. The Lord hears the cries of the saints, and the Lord will establish his kingdom. Verse 18. To do justice to the fatherless and the oppressed, so that man who is of the earth may strike terror no more. Verse 18 recognizes two opposing outcomes. First, that God will establish his perfect kingdom in justice and salvation. And secondly, the wickedness of sin will be defeated once and for all. I just want to encourage you, friends, don't settle for the kingdoms of this world. I said this morning as I began that some of you fear the Lord and some of you fear the things of this world. Some of you are putting your hope in the eternal things of God. Some of you are putting your hope in the things of this world. And I'm just here to tell you, I'm here to beg you this morning, do not settle for the kingdoms of this world. They seem mighty and great now. They seem flashy and attractive and desirous and pleasurable now, but they are all passing away. Don't settle for such things. Don't grow comfortable with the brokenness of this world. Long for, anticipate, and pray for the day when every knee bows to the King Jesus and wickedness and sin strike terror no more. That's our hope, friends. In 1741, I've read some accounts that took like 30 days, which is remarkable in and of itself. George Friedrich Handel composed his work titled Messiah. It was not intended to be associated with Christmas, but for most modern folks, it is very much today connected to the Christmas season. And it's most often performed during Christmas. However, most Christmas performances of Messiah end with what we call the Hallelujah Chorus. My guess is if you asked most people what's the last song or last uh, movement in Messiah, they'd say the Hallelujah Chorus because that's, if you've been to a performance of Messiah, that's most likely the final song, the final, the final movement that was sung and we all stood up and clapped and then we left. But it is only the conclusion of part two. Messiah has three parts. And, and, and frankly, though I, I certainly love the Hallelujah Chorus, I don't think it's the best movement in the work. My favorite piece, and the one that speaks to me most powerfully, is the very last, the, the true conclusion of Messiah. It's titled, Worthy is the Lamb, followed by a very lengthy Amen personal confession, I weep most of the time, every time I hear this work. The reason is, is because it's the text 
from Revelation 5. And it, the, the, the setting for that movement is the worship service that will be held around the throne of God when the Lamb is lifted up and the fullness of God's kingdom has come to, come to be. And the Bible tells us that around the throne of God, this is what will be spoken. Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them say to him who sits on the throne said to the Lamb, be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, amen. And the elders fell down and worshiped. Oh, what a day. I think I weep so often when I listen to this work because I listen to those words that will be spoken before the Lamb of God when the fullness of the kingdom has been accomplished and all the promises of God will have been fulfilled and the testimony of Psalm 10 will have come to be. The terror of the wickedness of men will be no more. God will exact, have exacted judge, judgment over all sin, wherever it can be found, until there is none. When in that piece they come to the amen, now the amen's about four minutes long. It just does something to me. It's the final word, it is done. It is finished. Amen. And it just makes my heart long for that day all the more. Friends, listen to me. You grieving today? Don't settle for the things of this world. Long for the kingdom that is to come. Are you oppressed today, mistreated today? Don't settle for the things of this world. Long for the day. Oh, long for the day. And the king of kings, who is king forever, will fully reign. Are you despondent? Are you discouraged about the things of this world not being as they ought to be? Don't settle for momentary fixes or, or things that tweak but don't cure. Long for the day when the lamb who was slain will receive worship and honor and glory and power forever and ever. Amen. Are you living today as a practical atheist? Assuming you will not be moved. Living as though there is no God and in all your thoughts there is no room for God. While there is opportunity, join the chorus. Bow the knee. Confess Jesus as Lord. Oh, and surrender yourself to the King who is King forever.
Thank you for listening to All for the Kingdom, a weekly podcast of my preaching ministry. For more sermons, blog posts, and other related content, go to bensmithsenior.org. That's bensmithsr.org. I am the pastor of Central Baptist Church in Waycross, Georgia. I would love for you to join us this coming Sunday at 201 Ava Street here in Waycross. Our morning services begin at 1030 a.m. For more information about Central Baptist, go to cbcwaycross.org. Again, thank you for listening. And until the Lord returns, let us live each moment all for the King and all for the kingdom.